Well, we are continuing in our trek um, through the Bible, generically, generally speaking, specifically through the book of Matthew. And we have been um, examining this from the perspective of um, the Jewish man, Matthew, and looking at the Messiah and jumping right into, um, we have a lot to cover. We've seen that, um, beginning last week, that we're going into that Passion Week and of Christ, the final week of his life, and that going into that week, he is um, being going to be examined, if you would, by the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, um, and even Herodians, um, as we go through this. And the goal of it, if you remember, um, when we talked about his entrance, and then I have this on the, these um, calendars, things as well, if you needed one, they're here that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he was actually entering in as the Passover lamb. There was multiple things going on, but one of the things was, we know from Exodus chapter 12 that on the 10th day of Nisan, that they were supposed to choose their lamb. And so John the Baptist had declared that Jesus was the lamb who was going to take away the sins of the world, right? And so here Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as the lamb. They were choosing their lamb. I'm not saying that they actually comprehended that they were doing it, but they were. Okay, And then over the next couple of days, while he's in the temple, as he keeps coming back in, they're going to continue to examine him and, and test him, quote-unquote. We'll talk about that word in just one moment, um, to see if there is any blemish in him. Now, that is prophetically how it's playing out, to, to, to reveal that there is what? No blemish in him. That's not these guys' purposes. Okay, They're not confirming him as the Passover lamb. They want to what? Do you remember all the way back in Capernaum when, when um, Jesus had healed the man in the synagogue? When the authorities, they went their way. Do you, anybody remember the word that was used, what they wanted to do with Jesus? Destroy him. They wanted to destroy him. And at this point, it's, it's two years or whatever, potentially three years later, right? And they have him what? They haven't figured out a way to destroy him yet. And so, I don't know whether they understand the the height of what's happening, but I can promise you the one that's behind the plot, the ultimate plot, does. Who's the one behind the ultimate plot? Satan. Satan knows his time is coming up. And as we begin to look through this week, it's going to take us three months to go through this, you're going to see, along with all this, the, the ramping up of Satan's, power in his work to try to cause Jesus to stumble because he knows if Jesus accomplishes his purpose he's done so he's sending his minions whether they know it or not okay so I'm not saying that these are quote-unquote workers of the devil in the point that they know they are does that make sense but that's where Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I'm fearful that just as Eve was deceived, so you may very well deceive. And someone may come in with another Jesus or another gospel or another spirit, and you may very well accept them. And then he goes on and talking about these ones, these false apostles, these false teachers who are coming in. And he says that they are workers of the devil. And he says that there are many who are looking like ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Okay? So that there are many people out there who look like they are workers of righteousness, of godliness, but rather they're workers of the devil. I believe that I'm teaching you truth. 
Be not many masters, many teachers, such of the greater condemnation. I truly believe that. However, you are responsible for what you believe. If you sit here and you believe everything I teach you and you don't become a Berean and you don't check me out to make sure of the things that I'm teaching you that they're true, and if you believe something that's false and it follows through your life, whose fault is it? It's yours. Now, I'm going to give an account for what I've taught and there's a greater condemnation for me. Okay? I believe that. But you're responsible for whether what you hold to be true or not. Okay? So... These guys here, that's why Jesus always said, um, in fact, I think that's going to be part of your message, David, in two weeks. I don't know if it is part of Matthew 23, where he says to them about, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do, or something like that. Yeah. And so, because they, on the outside, you know, they, they look pretty good. But on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. And they're going to bear this out right now. Because, again, they're not trying to confirm what Jesus is doing, they're trying to destroy it. And whenever you are functioning as a destroyer, think about this. Whose side are you on? Satan's side. He is the destroyer. He is a bad and he's a Apollyon. Okay? Now, again, that's assuming that it's going against the kingdom of God stuff. Okay? So, as we look at this, today, last week, we saw them challenging his authority. By whose authority do you do these things? Okay? And so he asked them the question. They wouldn't answer it because they knew what the, what, how it was going to play out. But today, they, they continue in now, and now they're going to try to, to, to cause him to stumble doctrinally. Okay? They're going to challenge his doctrine. And as we look at this, we're going to see, as Chuck read, there are four questions that are going to be posed. The first three are against the Messiah. The fourth one is by the Messiah himself. And so in each one of these, we're going to look at the situation, the solution, and then the implications to you and I, to us, and how it plays out to us, okay? So the first one is the Pharisees' question. And now what's fun about this one, right off the bat, is that they believe this is the perfect catch-22, okay? Because with them, you've got this strange alliance. It wasn't just the Pharisees who were coming, but the Pharisees were joined with the Herodians, this is like saying the Tea Party guys are getting together with the ultra-liberal um, left Democrats. Okay? Do you get it? I mean, that's like what? Polar opposites. But they're coming together. So you have the Rhodians who are very secular and, and Herod-oriented. Okay? So they're all about a, an earthly king. But then you've got the Pharisees who are what? The keepers of the law, all the way back to Mosaic law. And, and everything's got to be just right according to the law. So they are total opposites. The Herodians wouldn't mind eating the pigs and everything else. Because they're from, I mean, so these guys are like polar opposites. They're they just away from each other. But yet they have a what? A common goal. We have the, the comment that politics make what? Strange bedfellows. Okay? And so it's an amazing thing. These two guys come together. Why? Because they're going to pose him this question. If Jesus answers it one way, the Pharisees can accuse him and can condemn him. If he answers it the, the, the other way, because clearly there's only, what, two ways to answer this question, in their brain, the perfect catch-22, right? If he answers it the other way, then the Herodians will accuse him and condemn him. And then so either the religious court will condemn him or the 
civilian court will condemn him. Either way, they've pulverized it. They finally, after all these years, they've worked this together. They've got it. The perfect conundrum to, 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 to catch him in the trap. So, the barbed question. Do we pay taxes or don't we pay taxes? I love this answer. Jesus says what? Bring me, bring me one of the tax coins. The denarius. Bring me one of the tax coins. So he, I meant to bring a coin with me. Does anybody have a, like a quarter or a nickel on them? Nobody carries money anymore. Does anybody have a credit card? Anyways. <laughs> you got a coin? Give me, can I borrow a Bifocals. It's okay. So... He gave me a quarter. That was a whole nice one. Okay, thanks. Anybody else have money? <laughs> this is how you get tips. Anyways, so I, I look at the quarter in heads, right? Because we call it heads and tails. Why do we call it heads? Because somebody's head's on it. This is amazing. My face is on this thing. No, not really. Okay, so you didn't follow that one. All right, whose face is on it? Can you see that? From back there? Oh, they're what? They're consistent. Make sense? Why is George Washington's face on this thing? Why was he picked? Why was he picked? Oh, father of the country. Because he was the first president, okay? So, theoretically, our first, what? Servant. But we know that that has long since gone away, right? And so... But the idea is that it's his image. And so he represented, if you would, representationally, he represented the country. Okay? And so we've gone so far away from that stuff. That's why I didn't ask you for a a silver dollar or something, because you can get Susan B. Anthony on that thing, and I'm not quite sure how that played out that way. Okay? But the idea is that when that head was on it, it was representational of the, the civilians, okay, of their money. So now, the problem, the conundrum here is for, for Jesus, that if he answers, pay the taxes, right, that the Pharisees are going to say what? Why is that a bad answer? Because they hate the Romans. And what else, David? They're putting the Romans ahead of God. You want me to give my money to this Goyim to these these tyrants to these Gentiles. Caesar declared himself to be God. I got all these things. So from the Pharisees, from the from the religious Israel side, paying taxes is is showing that, that you are going you want to serve him, okay? And they're looking for the uh, the one who's going to come and deliver them. He's there in their midst, and they're they're rejecting him. If he says, then. No, of course not. You can't do that. Then what happens? The Herodians arrest him. So, Jesus says, give me the coin. And he says, whose image is on it? And they say what? Caesar's. They're not looking ahead. This is playing chess. It's kind of fun stuff. Did you ever watch um, Finding Bobby Fisher? Some of you have. Oh, that's kind of fun. Okay. I, I thought I was going to get a lot of blank stares. Okay. I got a lot of blank stares, but there was at least some recognition. Okay. Bobby Fischer was one of the, one of the greatest U.S. chess players ever um, until Josh Waitzkin came along. Josh Waitzkin um, was, in a sense, a new Bobby Fischer. But in that, um, in that movie, 
Finding Bobby Fischer, and it's all about Josh Waitzkin. I love the part in it where he's, he's looking at, and he's not seeing anything, and Bruce Pendolfini, I think it's who he is, was his coach, just goes and just wipes out all the, all the pieces off the board. And he's got an empty board. And he says, now picture it. And so Josh Waitzkin now is picturing that board. And he's got, I don't know how many steps ahead in his brain. He's so far ahead of the, 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 the competition. And so it all plays out then at the end. And he's playing this kid who's been trained by the best and everything. And da, 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 da. And they're playing for this big championship. And in, in, in his mind, so, you, you, anyways, I don't want to get into the whole story. But in his mind, Josh looks at this board, and he does, and he, and just wipes the, he doesn't do it, actually, but he, in his brain, he wipes it all out, and he begins to look at the blank board, and he begins to play it out. And he's sitting there, and he's letting his timer, because his timer, and his timer's running. And he puts out his hand to his opponent. And says, no, I don't resign. I extend you, I extend you what he's doing. To, I extend you the opportunity for a draw. The kid, from all perspectives, had the advantage. It looked, I mean, this kid thought he was, that Josh was gone. He, he had him. Pincer move. And then Josh looks at it for a while. And he opposite his hands out and says, Oh, you know, I can't remember how it states it. But the kid looks at him like incredulously, like, you're nuts. And Josh says to him, you've lost. You just don't know. That seems pretty what? Audacious, huh? You know? And this kid's looking at him like, you're, you're nuts. Probably thinking this is a, a bluff mood, you know? So he says, no. And then about six moves later, he's lost. Yeah. Okay, this is what's happening right here, right now. Jesus asks him the simple question. And it's almost like they're looking at it saying what? Yeah, go ahead, ask the question. It's Caesar. Never expecting that Jesus has this wrestling move where he's going to totally flip them. And all of a sudden, you wrestled, right, Mark? No, you never did. Anyways, you flip them. And all of a sudden, they're on the bottom looking up. Like, oh boy, you know? And uh, Jesus says to him, he says, well, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But he didn't stop there. It would have been okay if he stopped there. It would have been nice if he stopped there. But he adds on to it, and give to God the things that are God's. Again, that may mean nothing to your neighbor when you share it with him. But to these Jews, they got it. They understood Genesis chapter 1 and how it was playing in here. When God made man, he made man how? In his image and in his likeness. Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. This is the kingdom of the world. Give him the world of stuff. But give to God... The things that are God's. So, implications. First of all, regarding our relationship to the government. Romans 13, we don't need to go there. You know it. If you don't, please look it up later. 
talking to us, submit to the governing authorities. But within that concept of submitting to the governing authorities, it says to give taxes to whom taxes are due, to give honor to whom honor is due. Paying taxes is a privilege. It's not a burden. I'm not going to go all into this, but do you know who created taxes? Where was the first part of taxation? Joseph. Joseph just came up with it on his own, right? No. Who told Joseph how to do it? God. And it was 20% flat tax. Okay? 20%. Not the 5% that we might want to pay. Not the 2% we might want to pay. We growl, growl about even 8% sales tax. But it was a privilege. Taxation is a privilege for us to be a part of a larger process. It's part of what God has done. God says that the government holds the, the, the sword to go after those who, are, who, who do wrongfully. I'll leave that there. I just want to put it there. So taxation in and of itself is not evil. It's not wicked. Okay? It's a good thing. However, the bigger thing that Jesus was getting at is our relationship with God. All we have in all that we are belong to God. We groan and we gripe about people taking our money when it's meaningless anyway. It's going away. But that which is eternal is eternal. That sounds like a duh. But how often... Do we think, we go through life thinking to ourselves at this very moment, ooh, this has eternal implications, I better do this. Or do we think, oh man, I wish I had a little bit of more. We live for the here and now. Jesus said, look, don't worry about the money. Don't worry about the kingdoms of the world. You give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to the world the things that the world has. They came up with that coin, give it back to them. Doesn't matter. Who's going to provide for you? God. What did he tell his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent them out two by two? Go out how? If you would. Penniless. Don't take a money bag. Don't take an extra cloak. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Basically, what's he telling them? I will. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All these things will be added to you. Do you believe it? Or do you feel like you've got to build up your own kingdom so that you have it? So again, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Second question. Sadducees say the failure of the, uh, the, the Pharisees, and so they're probably... Twofold, they're probably bummed, but they're probably also thinking, what? Well, we got one, and the Pharisees couldn't do it, but watch, we get to do it. The Republicans failed, so watch the Democrats win this one, right? So they come, and they've got the perfect conundrum, and they talk about this woman, so this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 25 in the law, about what a man should do and how he should take care of his his brother's wife, okay? And we're not going to go back there, but that's where it comes from, okay? And so the Sadducees, who do not believe the law, now you need to understand this, they do not believe the, the literal interpretation of, of the Word of God. They don't believe that it applies to us. They are liberal theologians of today, okay? At best, they would say the Word of God, or the Bible 
contains the Word of God, not that it is the Word of God. Okay? That's the best that they would say. Okay? So these guys don't believe in the resurrection, even though the Bible is very clear in the Old Testament about that. We'll talk about that in a moment. They don't believe any of these things. Okay? And so, so when they come to him, they're not presenting something that they really believe. Now, one, one thing I wanted to say back with the uh, Pharisees as well, and I skipped past this, um, they came to test him. Okay? This is where I want to bring out this point, and I didn't bring it out. The word test there um, is not the word um, dokamos as far as being um, tested to be found genuine, but rather it's the word periosmos, means to trouble. They're only coming to trouble him. Jesus says, why did you come to trouble me? It's not test me to find whether I'm genuine and pure, but to test. And so later on, um, the, the word is used again as the word periosmos. So I'll forget it again, but I just want to point that out. Okay, So they come to periosmosm too. They come to trouble him as well. And he said, okay, so this woman, she was married to a man. He died, and he left her childless. So she was then given to his brother, who by the law was supposed to procreate with her so that he would then leave a child for his older brother. He died childless. So she was then given to the brother, to the brother, to the brother, to the brother, to the brother. Well, there were seven brothers. So she was married seven times. Okay? And so, but each of the times that the brother died, the, the man died, she was left childless. So the question is, whose wife will she be when everybody's resurrected and they go to heaven? you got this resurrection thing, and, you know, you get married till forever, right? And so whose wife is she going to be? Because she had seven Husbands, you telling me that she was like all seven brothers are going to be like sharing one wife when you get to heaven? And so you got this battle. Okay? Well, Jesus, I could almost picture Jesus kind of just grinning when he hears this thing. Okay? Because his first response is what? Oops. You do not know the scriptures or the power. You err, you err. Because you do not know the scriptures. You may read them, but you don't what? Know them. Like we talked about in Sunday school. There's a lot of people who know about God. They know God from the perspective of um, the term. But they don't know God. I knew a lot about Jesus. I knew a lot about God growing up. Okay? I could tell you a whole lot of stuff about the Bible. I could quote you the, the books of the Bible in a row and all this kind of But I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know God. I knew about him. These guys didn't know the scriptures. They might have read the scriptures, but they weren't allowing the scriptures to flow through them. They didn't know the mind of God. They didn't care about the will of God. They didn't know the scriptures. And because not knowing the scriptures, they didn't even know the power of God then. They didn't know what God was capable of. This is the word dunamis. This isn't the word authority here. This is the word dunamis. This is the power of God. You don't know the power of God. You never experienced it. You're working, walking in your own. And you haven't got a clue what God's able to do. And so he goes on then, first of all, about marriage in heaven. The first thing he says is, there is none. So, sorry about all those wedding vows about, you know, for all of eternity and all those, you know. And, uh, but you're not married forever. You're only married until what? Death do you part. 
If I die, I want Marcia to get remarried, if it's her desire, for, for companionship and fellowship. I think she'd want the same for me. There's not this thing, we're going to be married all the way into eternity. But Jesus says a very interesting thing about this. He says, you shall be like the what? Angels. <laughs> Did he say that you would be angels? No. This is tough, too, because, again, I don't have time to go on this site rabbit trail, but there's a lot of theologies out there that say that when you die, you what? You become an angel. You don't become an angel. Okay? You don't become an angel. You'll be like the angels in that the angels do not what? They don't have marriage. Make sense? There's no procreation. There's not going to be procreation there, so you're not going to be um, married, so don't worry about that. But the second thing is, the big one, is the resurrection where Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. That's what he's talking about, this resurrection, that that God can raise the dead. In fact, he had just shown them that with what? With Lazarus. If they were there with the widow of Nain's son, okay? Lazarus wasn't the first dead person that Jesus raised. And so you don't know the word, the, the scripture, and you don't know the power of God. He says about this resurrection thing, he says, God himself, the one who you proclaim to be serving, said, I am, key on the am, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when he says that, where was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? In the grave. In the grave. But at the burning bush, when he talks to Moses, and he, Moses says, so who should I tell him, who should I tell them, has sent me. God says, Yahweh says, tell them the God of, that I am the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the, the living. Okay? And so the, the very name I am, Yahweh, means the one who exists. And so we read from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, okay, that Daniel talks about the resurrection. There are numerous verses, I think, on your sermon note sheet okay, that you can go ahead and you can look at. But Jesus addresses this. Now, the implications, then, are, are for us, the ultimate marriage. Okay, we, we covered that. Okay, my ultimate marriage, though, is to Christ. I am his bride. When I die and I go to the other side, guess what? There is, in a sense, marriage. But it's not me married to Marcia. It's me married to Jesus. We have the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. So, I love my wife. However, my marriage to Christ is greater than my marriage to Marcia. Does that make sense? Even though I'm the husband of Marcia, I'm the part of the bride of Jesus. That marriage is eternal. That's what I need to remember and focus on. But the second part is this, this just kind of, I'll use the word, struck me, because that's actually what this is. The reaction of the crowd may be yours. They were stunned. Literally, it's ekpleso, from being struck. Swack! Okay? And so it's like someone slapping you in the face. You're what? Whoa! How did that happen? You know? like That's exactly what the word is. When Jesus said this about marriage, they were stunned. It says astonished. They weren't like full of, whoa, that's so neat. They were like taken aback. They were like someone just slapped them. Because everything they were what? 
they were holding to, everything they were counting on, because we are so physically oriented. I soak my life into my family. But in the end, my family, what? Isn't mine eternally. That's hard as a mom or dad. Grandma and grandpa. They're God's. They're not mine. He gave me the privilege of having them under my tutelage, but ultimately, I'm just a steward for them. And now, even Gabrielle, she's out of the tutelage. Now I help to, to assist in the stewardship of, of her kids. Kids. Kids singer. Kids. Anyways, so, but you get what I'm saying? They're not mine. Does that stun you? Does it take you aback? It did to them. That's how they reacted to that. And so it's something that we need to, again, get a grip on, change the way we think that everything from the eternal perspective. The third is the scribes' question. So the Pharisees missed it. The Sadducees missed it. So the scribes come on. Okay, now this is where the word periosmos comes in again because this is not the account of Luke. Okay, this is another account okay, where he's asked this question. And this time, it's not an individual who's really seeking information like it was in the book of Luke when Jesus was asked this question, okay? Remember in Luke, he was asked, um, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, you tell me. And so the, the guy answers the question, and that's when he gives the, the parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan because he, he's asked, well, who is my servant? Or who is my neighbor, right? Here, the question is trying to test him, trying to trap him, trying to cause him to stumble, Okay, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now, again, we think from the church's perspective, well, that's an easy answer, only because you've read the story a lot of times. Okay, and so think like a Jew in Jesus' day. How many commandments are there? At least 10, no. How about over 613? Yeah, whoa. Yeah, you think the 10 words of the covenant we call them the Ten Commandments. Those weren't even called commandments. Those were just the Ten Words of the Covenant. So God made a covenant with Israel, and these were the ten things that they needed to keep within the covenant. That's just a covenant. The commandments are all the things coming through Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, added on in other ones that came through the, the prophets. There was, they, the, the scribes had gone through, and there was at least 613 laws, commandments, that were in the Old Testament. Okay, So, so let's just round it off at 600. Or let's make it easy. Make 500. Okay? So you got one out of 500 chance of getting the right one. Or at least what, what? They think is the right one. But Jesus nailed it on the first question, or the first answer, and he actually then added a second thing to highlight it. And I love to ask this when I, when I used to teach at like a WANA conference and stuff, and ask people which is the most important verse in the entire Bible. And many people want to tell me John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his own. That's a great verse. But it's not the most important verse in the entire, entire Bible. And they go, no. And so someone else will say, like, you know, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. And that's not the most important either. And they go, no. You know, I mean, people were repulsed by this. I, I have this on good authority. That, I mean, I know I have the right answer. This is, sounds arrogant. But I know that I know the most important verse in the entire Bible. It's not Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's exactly right. Yeah. How do I know what the most important 
passage in the entire Bible is. Because Jesus told me. He was asked, what is the greatest law? What is the greatest commandment? And he goes back to Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. And you shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And the words which I teach you this day shall be in your hearts, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Whether you're sitting in a house, whether you're lying in a way, whether you're rised up, or whether you're sitting... When you're lying down or whether you're sitting up, whether you're in your house, whether you're on the way, whether you're lying down or whether you're sitting up, and you shall bind them as a sign upon your hands and as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Jesus goes back to the Shema. Hear, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And here's your command. Based upon that, that wasn't a command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. But here's your command based upon the fact that, that Yahweh is the only true God. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. The church of Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. That was way back early. This is way back at the end, right? What was the church of Ephesus condemned for? I know your works, that you, you test those who say they're prophets and you found them to be liars and you've done all these wonderful things. You're awesome. But I nevertheless, I have this one thing against you. What was the one thing? You lost your first love. You left the first love. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. If you love God, what's going to happen? You're going to want to serve Him. According to Shema, you're going to want to know His Word. And then you're going to want to teach it, inculcate it to your kids. And you're going to want to model it in your life. So I want you to think of that. Is that true in your life? Do you want to know God's word? Do you spend time every day in God's word? Do you seek to memorize it, hiding it in your heart? Do you seek to teach it to your kids or your grandkids? Do you seek to model it in your life that, that whatever you do with your hands is, is being governed by the word of God? That whatever you think upon and, and listen to and look at is being governed by the word of God? Whatever goes on in your house and on your property is being governed by the word of God. Does it even matter to you? That's what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Jesus then said, he didn't have to, but he added a caveat. And the second is like unto it. Is like unto it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you really love God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, you will love those who God loves. And he already dealt with that with the Pharisees, right? Give the Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's, because everybody, everybody, even the goyim, even the Gentiles, are made what? In the image and likeness of God. And so God loves, that's why the, the question with, on the Luke side, who is my neighbor, and why Jesus pulls out the Good Samaritan story, right? Because it wasn't the Jews who were doing the right thing, it was the Samaritan, and that's the people that they looked down upon. And so, love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, I've mentioned this before. I just saw some pictures with it. The I am second stuff. I, I'm okay with it, but I really, 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 man, I'd really love it to be changed to I am third. I'm not second. Others are second. God is first. Others are second. I am third. I am third. I'm not second. Make sense? I mean, that, that's a problem. If, 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 if I keep saying I'm second, 
then I'm serving God first. And I get it if you add everything, all this into this. But I need to have it in my brain. I need to have it in my brain. Maybe you don't have to do it. But I am third. I am last. Maybe even putting it that way. I am last. Okay? Because otherwise, I'm, I'm trying to inject myself all these places and do things for me. Okay? The implication to us, 1 John 3, 17, as it comes into the church in 1 John 4, 20. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you have this world's goods and there's somebody you know who has a need and you can help meet the need, but you choose not to, how can you say you love them? Well, that comes into play, 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he say he loves God whom he has not seen? If somebody in the assembly or somebody in, in the greater assembly has a need and I don't seek to meet it, and I have the ability to meet it, how can I say I love God? I cringed yesterday. I hated when I did this. I was going on my way to pick up Andrew up at Brevard. I left my house very early because I was supposed to be up in Brevard, North Carolina at 9 o'clock to pick him up. And so somewhere along the way, it was near Abbeville, there was a car pulled off on the side of the road with his blinkers on. And I went out around and kept going. I'm confessing because I feel really bad. I, I was eaten up for miles on that thing. Because your normal reaction is what? They probably what? Cell phone call. But you know what hit me a few miles down the road? I don't have signal here. I don't have signal here. <laughs> How, why should I assume that what? They had signal here. But I was what? I was in a hurry. I was on a schedule. I needed to be in Brevard at 9 o'clock in the morning. You know? da 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 I didn't know that individual. Maybe I did. And I just, I, this time I'll never know, right? Maybe I just passed by someone, this older person that I really did know, you know, and, and I'll find out later, man, I was stuck on the road and all these people passed me by and no one's, oh yeah, really? That was really bad, you know? <laughs> oh, what day was it? Oh, yeah. Well, anyways, think about it. Think about it. Or if somebody recognized you as you went past and they came to you later and said, Dude, I was broken down on the side of the road. Why didn't you stop? Wouldn't you feel really bad about it then? That's your neighbor. And so I was convicted. I mean, that was it. That was an imp- I'm preparing this message. You get it? I'm getting ready to teach this stuff. And God just slams me. Okay, I guess it means nothing to you. Just go ahead and preach it. <sighs> what a liar. What does it say I was? I'm a what? A liar. Okay? So I'm picking on myself here. Okay? But that's what it says. At that moment, I bore myself out to be a liar. Ouch. So how does that play out in your life? I mean, honestly, I mean, okay, so I messed up yesterday. I'm not saying I mess up every moment of my life, just 90% of them. So... Is it going to change my life? My next door neighbor? My neighbor across the street? The neighbor at work? The neighbor that will knock on the door of on Wednesday? How does that play out? 
Hopefully it changes their life. But it never can change their life if what? If I stay within my own little cocoon and I don't go out and do what Jesus commanded me to do. If the love of God doesn't change my life, it'll never change their life because they're not going to see it in me. That's what God uses the most is when they see his love in us being portrayed to them. So Jesus then takes this moment because they're kind of all out of questions. They're kind of like all three categories of these religious individuals took their shot at him, right? And so he's got them all together. They're kind of all standing there waiting to see whether somebody's going to take them down. You know, okay, attrition. You know, we wiped them up. You know, we maybe hurt them a little bit. We hurt them a little bit. Maybe these guys are going to get them. They're all standing there. So Jesus turns to them and says, wait, wait, wait. Before you go, I got a question for you. <laughs> Don't you love it? Wait, wait, wait. My turn. You all took a turn. I get to ask a question. Messiah. When he comes, assuming he's not here, whose son will he be? It's a great leading question. Again, he's setting them up. They tried to set him up, and it what? It failed, it failed, it failed, it failed, right? So he says, whose son is the Messiah? Their response was, very biblical, David's, because it says so in the word, okay? We know that from the, the Psalms, right? The catch is then, when we come to Psalm 100, I think it's Psalm 100, 110, verse 1, Jesus says, why does it say then, how does it say that David in the spirit calls him Lord, because we read in Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh said to my Lord. Now, in, um, in the New King James, no, it says it right. Okay, Yahweh said to my Lord. One of them, it, I thought I read, it made it, oh, I know, it was, um, I think it was Esword's version. Um, it makes it look like um, that the second Lord is Yahweh, and it's not. But it's Yahweh says to my, my Lord, my Adonai. So you got to think of this then from the Jewish man's perspective, talking about King David. Who again is King David? The greatest, greatest king ever, right? Okay, so there's King David, okay? And he says, Yahweh said to who? Well... No, I didn't say it. Don't, wait, don't, don't read in your Christian theology. Just, just think about what's saying. This is David speaking, right? And Yahweh is speaking. And he's declaring this thing. He says, Yahweh said to my master, my Lord. Which means, he's not saying he spoke to my counselor. He spoke to my recorder. He spoke to my treasurer. He spoke to the priest. He didn't say any of that. David says, Yahweh, the eternal one, God over heavens and the earth, spoke to my king, my master, my Lord. Wait a second. That means there's got to be what? Somebody else who is above David. Think about it. And who already exists. Messiah wasn't going to be born and become. Messiah already was, or slash is, if you would, at that moment, right? And so Messiah was already in existence. 
So like Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. If you would not, I don't think Job maybe understood it as Messiah, but that's the kind of concept, right? And I know I will see him after I die. I will see him in the flesh. How cool is that? I know he lives. He's in existence. And after I die, I'm going to see him in the flesh, face to face. That's pure existence. <laughs> I don't know how I should get around that. I mean, I'm going to see him in the flesh face to face. He has pure existence. David then says the same thing. And so, so he says to them, so how does he say this? If he is the son of David, how can David say that this guy's already in existence? So what was their solution? What was their answer? None. They had none. What they had sought to do to him and weren't able to accomplish, <laughs> he just turned around and, and shut them down. And the crowds again were what? Astonished. Think back, Matthew chapter 7, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. The people were astonished with the teachings of Jesus because he taught them as one who had authority. Why? Because he did. Yeah, exactly right. Because he did. Because he was who he claimed to be. This is God in their presence. And, and this is Job. <laughs> Again, having just gone through Job, this is Job mothing off to God. You know, I, want, I, just, I just want my day in court with God. Face to face. I'm going to do it. All of a sudden, Yahweh shows up. He says, hey, Job. Uh-oh. What? I am undone. I am in big trouble. I asked for this moment. I got this moment. And now I what? I regret this moment. I do not want this moment. Oh, no, big guy. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not going back on this now. Stand up. Talk to me like a man. You want to, you want all this stuff? You tell me. Were you there when I, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you, could you almost picture Jesus doing this to these guys? He asked them the question, and they're like, duh. I mean, if I'm Jesus at this moment, and I'm taking it the next step. <laughs> he doesn't. He's gracious. He's so kind. But I want to. I want to. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. I got one for each of you. <laughs> I'm going to start pulling you apart. Where were you? Oh, yeah, by the way, ha, where were you two nights ago? You know, or something like that. You know, just start blowing them away. Jesus and his grace doesn't do this. Implications. The deity of Christ is huge. Again, I've said this over and over again. If Jesus isn't God, if he is not Yahweh incarnate, I'm not a biblicist. I'm not even an Old Testament person. I'm a creationist. I can't deny that there's a creator God. But if Jesus isn't God, you get rid of, don't just get rid of the New Testament. Get rid of the Old Testament because the Old Testament declares it as well. That's what Jesus goes back to to prove his deity. Yahweh promised that he would come and be in their midst. And here he is. <laughs> and they're fighting against him. Even after this, even after he shuts them up, now they're going to find a way to what? To connive against them. 
They can't get them. So now they're going to have to try to find somebody who's going to what? Trap them otherwise. They're going to do it in the dark. They're going to do it at night. But two weeks from now, this conversation is going to continue because Jesus doesn't really, if you would, leave it here. Because now he's going to turn around and he's going to talk to them in front of all the people with all of his woes. It's just a, an amazing thing. So in the end, are you studying the scriptures in order that you might rightly divide them and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you? I understand, again, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to give me utterance. But he brings out that which I have read and I have studied. If you have not filled up your warehouse with the word of God, there's nothing to pull, draw from. But you need to be prepared to give an answer. And I want to challenge you, again, as we talk about loving God. If you're not spending time in his word, you really have to ask yourself, do you really love him? Do you really care? As Jesus answered each of the questions leveled at him, what reaction did you have to his responses? I know. This is old school. This is old hat for us. We, we go through this stuff and we go, oh, I heard this before. Yep, 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 yep. But put yourself in the position that, that the people were. Does this... Does this cause you to struggle? Is there then a need to change the way you think and ultimately change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. You alone are our God. There is none other. Lord, and you answered pointedly and yet graciously. Lord, we know that you're going to level, as we will look at in a couple of weeks, um, the woes at them. Yet, Lord... I know it's your desire for them still to repent. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to not just look at your word um, stoically, without meaning, as these men did, um, as just a study manual, but, Lord, that we would see it as a, a love letter to us and that we would apply each of these things to our lives, Lord, that we would look to you for your wisdom and your counsel. In Jesus' name, amen.